my speaking up and out has always been kind of my love letter to the industry as a thank you and to all the patients um, as a, as a thank you for saying like, thanks for not giving up and, and making sure that I got here. Unlimited human potential. Do you ever think about the line of work that you're in, in those terms, unlimited human potential? That's what I think about when I think about the infinite or at least indefinite number of IVF babies that can be born or babies born from art in general. My guest is Elizabeth Carr. You know who she is because she was the first baby born from in vitro fertilization in the United States through Dr. Howard Jones and his institute. And we talk about what that was like to always be in the limelight. Uh, But I think the reason why you'll get an interest in the well, you'll take an interest in this episode is because uh, partly the relationship that she talks about with her family and Dr. Jones and uh, and then what the other IVF babies that she knows from the Institute, uh, what their relationship was like and their fondness and uh, even the way she thinks of Dr. Jones's colleagues and uh, that, that weren't there at the Institute, but, but everywhere. And so I think as you think about what kind of legacy that you're having, maybe we take a, a little break from the private equity and the hiring and the marketing and uh, the business development and all of the, this stuff, the important stuff that we do have to do. Maybe we take a break for a second so that you all can reflect on the legacy that you're leaving from someone who one is very good about speaking about it, uh, but two, at least in this country has been living it for the longest. So uh, now she's with tomorrow life sciences and I get her to talk a little bit about that and a little bit about advocacy and, and, and opening up. But why don't you think about this episode with regard to your legacy and enjoy this interview with Elizabeth Carr, Ms. Carr, Elizabeth, welcome to inside reproductive health. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. You are the United States of America's first baby to be born through in vitro fertilization. So, uh, does Louise Brown like ever just, did, did she ever throw some nationalistic crap at you that the UK <laughs> beat us to it? Or, or, does, does the, does the step, you know, does that, uh, Steptoe Jones legacy, does it, does it manifest itself as a rivalry decades later, or was it the whole world collaborating to, to, to try to do the, the right thing? Yeah, no, no shade, definitely no shade from Louise. <laughs> uh, and yeah, my, my doctors Jones actually worked with Steptoe and Edwards to kind of understand what they had success with and then tried to replicate in the U.S. Of course, my distinction versus Louise, where maybe I'm throwing a little shade, is that I'm really the the first IVF baby that, you know, when we think of modern IVF, I'm it. So Louise was a natural cycle, whereas I was the first baby born using all of the like hormone protocols that we're all so familiar with now. Wow. So, well, and that's another reason why whenever somebody says, uh, and and normally there's playing around, but our country did this first or our team, our university, whatever did this first. It's like, yeah, they did that one step first. And then because (laughs) you did that one step and you helped somebody out, they figured out another step. And then the other guys and gals over here figured out another step. And 
uh, and it's much better to think collegially. Exactly. So, uh, so when did that start to become a part of your life? Because meaning it, it was always a part of your parents' life, but, uh, but for you, it definitely wasn't, you know, in the first couple years of your life, uh, uh, in terms of like, you knowing that, you know, at least age two and three. Well, I mean, yes and no. So I, let me put it this way. My first press conference ever was at three days old. So while I may not have had the cognitive realization of, of what, was going on. Um, I, I have always known that I was not like all of my other peers, you know, other kindergartners weren't going on good morning America, but I was, um, you know, thing, things like that. So I may not have realized until I was older, um, what this meant, but, but I knew that my parents went through something different in order to get me here. That was kind of like my understanding when I was very young. Um, right, so and, my assumption was yeah. that, you know, it would have taken a few years before somebody to be able to explain it to you, but you were just never out of the limelight is what you're saying. Correct. Childhood. No, I mean, it, it was a media firestorm from um, the day that it was announced that there was uh, a pregnancy even but before I was born, just even a pregnancy, barren woman impregnated was the headline that my father recalls reading. Um, and he was like, yep, that's my wife. <laughs> so yeah, I've, it's always been a uh, subject of, of media spotlight and scrutiny. And so how long did that last for you said you went to you went to kindergarten and there oh, was, I mean, it's lasted my whole life. Yeah. It still happens. It's lasted my whole life. Um, basically every reproductive milestone, um, somebody will want to talk to me about what this means, or you wanted to check in and make sure I was developmentally, um, just like everybody else, uh, because this was, you know, had never been How's done that before. going for you, by the way. Yeah. I mean, you know, mostly I'm normal. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, as I crazy as I, everybody else. <laughs> exactly. I don't yeah. think there's any real normal out there. Okay. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, it's been a constant, uh, limelight. I mean, I had, I had a, a camera crew here last week at my house and I'm, you know, I'm just living my life. So were there, um, were there, were there points in your life where people were less, where the media was less interested, like, Oh, 13 year olds are gross. Let's bother her again. When she, <laughs> when she's old enough to vote, like, were there ever lulls in where there and, or, or maybe at least lulls compared to the peaks yeah, I think uh, the yeah, the ages that were less exciting. Right. So like nine was not a big deal, but 10 was a huge deal because it was, had been a decade since I had been born. Um, you know, when I turned 16, it was like sweet 16. Right. When I turned 20, when I got married, when I had my son, when, um, you know, it's like all of these kind of life milestones that people go through. Mine had an additional level of uh, media interest that I don't think uh, many people realize uh, until we start talking about it. Are you, yeah. are you gunning for centenarian status? triple digits because i know that was the running joke is you know this year i turned 40 and i was like you know i can't lie about my age everybody knows when my birthday is and exactly how old i am forever and ever that's you know that's what i'm stuck with um so yeah it's uh it's crazy so when did this uh 
notoriety start to get you involved with the fertility field? Like the fertility field had always known about you. Uh, the uh, the doctors knew who you were, and they certainly know, knew who Howard Jones was. But at what point did it start to get you like involved with them? Yeah. So, I, I mean, aside from the media attention and all the interviews that I've had over the course of my life growing up, I, um, I've always had an interest in science. I'm not good at math, but I've always liked to explain the science. So I've always, and I say always, I think I was probably 10 when I started really paying attention to the industry and seeing what was going on and developing. Um, so I've always paid attention to the reproductive field, but I also started realizing that because I had this weird platform in life that I could use my voice for good and for change. And so I really, um, from a pretty young age, started speaking up about different reproductive options out there and became kind of like a junior advocate, you know, junior How patient young advocate. Of an age? Probably 10, 11. Uh, I really started paying attention to what was going on with insurance. Um, and I'm still actively fighting those insurance battles and testifying in front of various <laughs> committees and uh, on state by state basis and paying attention to all the laws and, um, you know, looking into just helping people understand their options. So I started really paying attention to that stuff probably when I was 10. Um, and then I went on to be a journalist and uh, wrote, not surprising to many, I don't think, primarily about health and science. And again, stayed up on everything going on. Um, and then I've worked for a few fertility startups and, and done a bunch of freelance writing and um, social media for various companies. And now I'm at Tomorrow Life Sciences as director of marketing. So you started off as a journalist. Were you ever kind of covering just a regular beat or was it always health and science? Yeah. So I did a range of things. Uh, when that you, when I started out, I worked from age 18 at the Boston globe. And I actually started out as an obituary writer because you can't libel a dead person, believe it or not. So they let you start there. Um, and then I did a lot of general assignment. Um, and then I went into health and wellness was a writer. Then I became a health and wellness editor. Um, and so I, I've done you, you name the, you name it. Uh, it runs the gamut in terms of journalism. What made the switch or the transition from journalism to marketing? Uh, so I spent 15 years of my career at the Boston Globe and I actually jumped from the editorial side of the business to the marketing side of the business because I wanted to learn, um, you know, the dirty little secret of newspapers is that you don't make money selling a newspaper. You make it doing events and marketing and in-house advertising and all these other kind of uh, modalities uh, that a newspaper has available to them. So I just wanted to learn soup to nuts, the business. Um and so that's why I jumped to the marketing side. And then I figured out that, you know, this was an important skill in the fertility world for, you know, anyone looking to grow their practice or understand the business of infertility services or reproductive technologies as well. Um, and, you know, it's hard, it's, it's complicated, right? If you don't understand the reproductive field, it's hard to translate it into plain English for people sometimes. Um, and I, that's, that's a skill that I 
wanted to learn and adopt very early, um, that I, I wanted to be able to explain something very complex in a way that people could understand it. So what areas of marketing did you experience both at the Boston Globe and then afterward? Uh, so I was one of the first digital reporters, um, you know, back before anybody knew what a blogger was, I was blogging, um, doing social media, tweeting, um, you know, doing kind of the early days of podcasting where, you know, we did audio over stills. It wasn't really movies back then, but audio over stills kind of storytelling, um, you know, things like that. Basically anything I could get my hands on and play around with, I was experimenting with. And then, and then what happens after the Boston Globe? Um, let me see. After the Boston Globe, I actually went to work for Runner's World magazine. I was an editor there because in my copious free time, I am uh, an endurance runner. I'm, I run marathons. And so, uh, again, kind of still in that health and wellness bent uh, was a was a writer and editor there. Then I went to work for uh, OvaScience um, for a very short period of time. I Then I've, I've worked for genomic prediction. I've done nonprofit fundraising um, and leads, leads kind of all the way up to today at tomorrow. All the while that you're doing, like that you're at the Globe, that you're at Runner's World, are you, are you involved in advocacy, you said the insurance passion never left you. So what were you doing during that time? Yeah. So it's all the stuff that nobody sees, right? It's all the stuff behind the scenes that we all know, hopefully we all know is going on of, you know, fighting to get insurance mandates in various states where there aren't mandates um, and coverage, as well as um, making sure that um, bills that are being proposed have language that is protective of all, not just some seeking reproductive options. Um, so all of the nitty gritty stuff that's behind the scenes that nobody really, you know, it's it's not visible, but it's critical work. So I've kind of always been doing that since I was very young. Um, it's just not something that people see. So then how did you, when did the logical or now seemingly logical mm-hmm conclusion of starting to work with startups in the IVF space? When did that happen? Um, and how did it happen? Probably. I don't, uh, I'm trying to think how many years ago, probably 10 years ago, I think is when I started. Sorry. My dog is drinking water loudly off camera. (laughs) Miracle. Thank you. So, Um, so probably about 10 years ago is when I started working in the infertility slash startup space in a, in a professional capacity, as opposed to just a patient advocacy capacity. Um, and how did it happen? I, you know, I'm not really sure. I've just always kind of known a lot of people in the space. Um, and I happen to have this like weird digital tool set um, to, or skill set in my tool belt of various things I was good at. And I understood um, the needs of patients as well as the needs of clinics or providers as well. And so it was kind of marrying all of these various skills from journalism, marketing, patient advocacy, kind of all into one, um, you know, one multi-tool, I guess you would call it. 
as you've established, we all know how old you are. So <laughs> if this took place about 30, what, why not until then was, was it, was it just because you were just another person doing other things in your career or was it because there weren't as many startups in the fertility space at that. I time. think, yeah, I think it was both to be honest with you. I think I was just kind of still, I felt like I still had a lot of um, growth to go at when I, I left the globe when I was 33. Um, <clears throat> so I still kind of had this mini city of people to learn from. And that was, I was really grateful that I spent a majority of my career there because I did learn so many different skills from so many different people. Um, and then, yeah, I think also, yes, we have seen more and more fertility startups, um, survive those early days, to be honest with you. I think it's, there's, there's many, many out there, but not many of them become known until after they survive that first few bumpy, like six months to a year. Right. And so that's kind of when I feel like people rise to bubble up to the surface. Was it, what were people working on at that time that you found interesting in the fertility space? Um, I mean, the, back then, um, you know, it was a lot of the early days of pre-implantation genetic testing, which is fascinating to me because it was not even a, in the realm of possibility when I was born. I mean, this is really dating me, but they had a statement written or my doctor has had a statement written in their pocket about how it was a sad day for infertility that they had on backup just because ultrasound was showing that I was really, really small. And they were worried I was going to come out with birth defects because I was only five pounds, 12 ounces and ultrasound was so bad back then. Right. So people forget that, like the things that we take for granted now, um, vitrification. I remember when vitrification became possible and that was like the catalyst and game changer in the field, you know, egg freezing was, I remember being probably my late teens and touring a facility that had done the first egg freezing for fertility preservation for cancer patients, because that was, it was very niche back then. Um, and it was like groundbreaking that they figured out that, yeah, we can freeze eggs and, and they can still go on to become viable pregnancies. People didn't know that that was possible. Um, so it's kind of like all of these milestone moments that I remember, um, you know, growing up with the industry really in, in my view. And then what, what landed you at tomorrow and how long have you been there for? Yeah. So I, I'm trying to think, I think I've been here six months now. Um, I saw tomorrow at ASRM actually. And I just thought, wow, this is the kind of safety and transparency that I hear from a daily basis that patients really are kind of clamoring for that. They want, you know, they want more information. I know that we, we all think it can be information overload because it can be right. We didn't, my, my mother always jokes that she was kind of grateful that there was no Dr. Google back then when she was going through IVF um, because it is so overwhelming, the amount of options and information out there. Um, but I hear from people, you know, I really wish there was a way I could just stay up to date on all of my 
eggs, embryos, health information, everything I needed to know and not wonder where things are or what the status of them is um, in in the moment, really, um, to, to know that everything is safe. And I've worked so hard to, you know, get these eggs or embryos that I want to protect them at all costs. Um, and I think that, you know, tomorrow's unique uh, digital chain of custody and patented technology is just, it's, it's just, you know, so interesting in kind of leveling up that transparency and peace of mind for patients. I don't know exactly <laughs> when a startup becomes not a startup. Is it, <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> is, it, is it safe? To, w- w- do we still call tomorrow a startup? Um, I, I mean, I don't know. That's a very good question. Um, a lot of money and a lot of people. And, and, uh, <laughs> and we're all working ro- very hard. A deep so. roster at this point. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, and your director of marketing, that's your t- it, uh, director of product and clinic of, marketing, of product yeah. and clinic marketing. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, do they pull you out like a dog and pony show? Like, <laughs> Here's our, idea. I mean, which is, which is no, par- no, no. partly the role of a marketing director anyway. Uh, but given your status, how is that used? No, I mean, it's really kind of um, I'm always the one saying like, oh, I know them or, or you know, like, let me I want to help or, you know, I'm I'm really the one who kind of said um, I want to help move the needle in whatever way I can for the industry. That is kind of my that is my like personal stake in the ground aside from tomorrow or any other company I've ever worked with. It's really how can I personally move the needle Um for the better in the industry at for patients. That is, that is my end game. Um, and so everything I do is kind of with that, um, mindset, you know, uh, moving forward. Um, and no, it's really my job to kind of, again, translate all of the complex things about the, about this technology that we have and explain it to people in a way that makes sense. Um, and let people know, you know, why it matters. So our so director of clinic and product marketing, that means of what tomorrow is marketing to clinics. Yeah. Helping, helping clinics so that they can level up their practices in terms of having our, our cutting edge technology at their practice. And then as well as explaining the product itself, um, like soup to nuts, nuts and bolts in a very, you know, non-technical way to understand. So what are you doing to, for, to talk to practices now? Yeah. So essentially, um, you know, my job now is to interface with all of our current partners and help them explain to their patients, you know, this is the tomorrow platform. This is why we're using it. This is what it means. Um, you know, that kind of stuff. So I help them explain to their own patient populations why this is important and it matters as well. Um, and then again, explaining the product to the clinic so that the clinic can then explain the product to their patients as well. We're talking about lessons learned in owning a practice or owning a business in the fertility field and things that you may want to learn how to do or learn about before you go and start your own venture. Another thing is some of the systems that are used. I know people that can give really good recommendations on the different EMRs they've shopped and the the depth and scope of functions. But I would ask someone that you know that uses EngagedMD. If you're not already, if you don't use 
use engaged MD in your system, you're thinking I'm, I want to open my own office within my own group, or I want to uh, open my own practice. I want to go join somebody else and I want to be able to add something to it. Engaged MD is one of the surest bets that you can do, but I, you don't take my word for it. Ask someone that you know, because more than half of your colleagues are using EngagedMD and more than half of your colleagues are extremely delighted with EngagedMD because they've got real informed consent. They don't have stacks of papers that people have to sign and then account for and then keep in a file cabinet somewhere. They have true informed consent from patients that have a module at their convenience so that the staff isn't overburdened with questions that they don't need to be getting, that they can help the patient with the attention that needs to be devoted to that patient's case because the elementary, the rudimentary is covered. And now it's just what that patient is stuck on or what's unique to their case that the care team can focus their care on. That's what personalized care is. And more than half of your colleagues have seen the benefit from engaged MD that way. So just reach out to any of them. Hey guys, do you use engaged MD? The people you went to fellowship with people that you see at ASRM. Hey, do you use engaged MD? What do you think? I hear Griff talk about it, but he doesn't own a practice. What do you guys think? And see what they say. But if you want that free workflow assessment, you want to see what other practices are doing, you want those insights that engaged MD has, and you want to see how your practice stacks against that ideal workflow, then you go to engagedmd.com slash Griffin. And you mentioned that you heard them on the show. You mentioned that you heard them from me, and then you're going to get that free workflow assessment. So ask somebody else, don't take my word for it, but go to engagedmd.com slash Griffin, or say you heard it on the show, say you heard it from me. So you can get that free work assessment for you. That's one of the biggest system wins that you could have right off the bat. And you can verify that just by asking people you already know. I hope you enjoy the rest of this episode about things you need to know for the fertility business you might start. When you're at ASRM, especially like if you're either talking or you're involved with a session or somebody invites you to be the guest at their, you know, the guest of honor at, yep. at their party and you meet fertility doctors, what do they say to you? Uh, oh, it runs the gamut. Um, I want to hear think... the gamut. I want to hear all of the, I want to, we, we got time. I want to hear all of the gamut. I mean, I've heard everything from the very young uh, embryologists who are like, you're in all my textbooks, um, which makes me feel really old and weird, um, but in a good way um, versus, you know, some of the older physicians who remember my doctors, Dr. Howard and Dr. Georgiana Jones um, and comparing notes to like what it was like back then versus what it's like now. Um, I've had people ask me really odd questions such as, do I have a belly button? Spoiler. Yes, I do. I was born just like everybody else. Wait, do um, doctors are asking that question or doctors or and patients have asked me that question. I kid you not, which it, it's always shocking when a, a clinician asks me that question. Um, mostly OBGYNs. I have to be honest. Um, so. I, I wonder if there's a, what the reason that they're asking that question, because there's a, because in the early days of IVF, the slang term was test tube baby. Right. And so the, the image in everybody's head was that I was grown in a test tube which is just wildly 
inaccurate. Um, also, fertilization happened in a petri dish and there were no test tubes involved in any way, shape or form. So I always found that very amusing and I've always hated that um, nickname. Well, I, I, I thought there might have been like, uh, but they didn't know that you that you went through gestation in utero. They, they didn't know that. They, they, yeah, a lot they, of people, a lot of in people vitro think fertilization also means, means grown in, in a lab, vitro. like literally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I have to I often have to remind people that that honestly, the only difference was that fertilization happened in a Petri dish. And then I was placed back in my mother's womb. And nine months later, I came out just like everybody else does. So. Uh, I mean, a lot of people think that, uh, you know, like Alaska is a country or that, uh, Queen Elizabeth lives in Brazil. So like it could, it could be, you know, I, I could see a lot of people thinking anything about that, but it yes. surprises, surprises me that OBGYNs have as some, well. not all some just to, you know, I've, I've just, a, not, not. I'm not saying everybody. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, um, I think that's the one thing that surprises me still to this day is that I have to do so much still basic education on what IVF, you know, I, and I only primarily speak about IVF because it's what, what got me here. So I know it intimately well. Um, but in terms of education on what exactly IVF is, there's still a lot of baseline education that needs to happen on a, on a general level for a lot of people. Many people have maybe heard about it um, and think they understand what it is, but a lot of people, there are still misconceptions about it. Yeah. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen to me as much now that that generation is mostly gone, but I used to meet people that that knew my grandparents, I would meet older people that knew my grandparents and they would mm -hmm. talk about, uh, uh, how they, how, how they knew my grandparents. I guess that happens with my parents' generation, uh, too, but I guess I know more about my parents' generation. So I, yeah, I'm just, yeah, yeah. A couple of years ago, my brother and I were at a neighborhood bar in the neighborhood that we're for the working class outside of Buffalo neighborhood fourth generation too. And we're at a neighborhood bar where like all of the Irish working class stereotypes are coming together. Like our second cousin is yeah. bartending that we don't know that was, Oh yeah. Yeah. I know. And then you know, there's this older couple there and they're, Oh, I, yeah, I knew who your, who your family were. They were the Burnses and and they were like telling me about my grandparents and, and their family and the great grandparents. And I wonder, do you ever get that vibe from, from, older physicians like who were maybe just behind the steptoe jones generation and uh like do they want to tell you about dr jones or doc, maybe even dr steptoe even though he wasn't in this country like do they want to tell you about them in the same way that your grandparents friends would want to tell you about your grandparents. Absolutely. And the grandparent analogy actually is a very good one because that's how I've always referred to the Jones as my second set of grandparents. Our relationship for my whole life until they died was very, very close. Um, phone calls, emails, writing, um, all sorts of correspondence. Uh, when I had my son, Dr. Howard wanted to make sure that I was going to a hospital with a level two NICU just in case, um, you know, all these kinds of things. So, um, yeah, people definitely want to share their stories with me of, oh, I was a fellow. I was a Jones fellow or I went through the program or. Um, you know, I learned from so-and-so who was on the original team or, you know, all, all those kinds of things. I, I actually really appreciate when people share those stories with me because 
um, you know, those were that was were kind of the Wild West days back then. Right. They were trying to figure out what was going to work. I don't think people realize that my parents, um, you know, they didn't realize they were going to be the first until my mother got pregnant. And then the Jones were like, by the way, you're the first. <laughs> um, and my parents, I think, naively assumed that there had been success. Like it didn't dawn on them that there wasn't success mm. um, beforehand. Um, and they weren't the only couple going through this. There were a group of other people going through this process at the same time my parents were but all of the couples had a different protocol. And so none of the couples knew like, are we going to be the ones that the protocol works or is it going to be somebody else? Um, and they weren't really allowed to share notes or talk about, you know, how their protocols were different. So it was kind of like you'd pass in the hallway and wave and, but you didn't know, like, are they, are they pregnant? Are we pregnant? What's going on? Um, so yeah, it, it, as I said, it was the wild west. So it's always interesting to hear those stories from, from the very early group. And so I, Dr. Jones passed away, like when I got into the fertility field. So I started working with our first fertility client in 2014, but I moved back to the U S in June of 2015. And I think he passed away that summer. Yeah. And, uh, so how much, correspondence did you have with Dr. Jones throughout your life? Oh, uh, as I said, so much correspondence. <laughs> I, I mean, um, when I was little, we had a Mother's Day reunion every year at the Jones Institute in Norfolk for the first um, hundred babies, essentially. Um, and when it got to be a thousand and a thousand and one babies, that was our last reunion because it just got to be too many people. <laughs> yeah. And that was just from the one you know, clinic. Um, so throughout my life, you know, he would come to the airport and pick us up or he would, you know, I've got birthday, um, birthday cards and phone calls every Christmas and on my birthday from them. Um, I, when I interned as a writer at the Virginian pilot newspaper, um, Dr. Howard actually, uh, helped me figure out my housing. And I stayed with one of his fellows and he and I had a standing lunch date every Wednesday while I was there for the entire summer. Um, he was one of the first people I told when I was pregnant with my son, um, he was invited to my wedding, you know, they were invited to my wedding. Uh, you know, anytime I had a newspaper article that made the front page or something like that, he would send me a note. Um, so it, people I think don't realize that we had such a close relationship and they really were like a second set of grandparents, as I said. So I just had a client ask me today. They were like, uh, cause we we're doing a photo shoot for them and we have a part of that where we, we have just like an open period where people can mm -hmm. come in and they can take their, they can bring their kids and they can take a picture and, and they asked me, what's the age limit? Because we just had someone in their early 20s who reached out to Dr. So-and-so and, -so and uh, said that they're now beginning medical school. And I was like, there's no age. Like, yeah, that, that's like, great. That's, that's incredible. Like, that's yeah. like, that's, it's not just the cute chubby cheeks that, that is the whole story. Like, right. and you could argue that, <laughs> That's a, like, that's the story, like, or, you know, this more broadly speaking, this mm -hmm. 
unlimited human potential. You don't know what the human potential is, but we know that it wouldn't have existed if not for. And, right. uh, and so you like, you were a part of, of, of that growing up. So, uh, I, I want to ask this question that has to do with the infertility community. If you think it's personal, tell me I'll, I'll edit it out. Sure. I, I think it's, I think it's germane to the conversation. So sure. D- did you go through infertility treatment? For- Everybody asks me that. No. So that was the other, the other interesting thing about my mother's fertility journey to, to have me, she actually didn't have traditional infertility. She like where it was unexplained or you know, something was going on like that. It was, um, scar tissue from a botched appendix surgery when she was in her teens. And she actually had three eptopic pregnancies before having me. And so her fallopian tubes were removed, which then that's where her fertility issues really came in because you, you know, back then you couldn't have a child unless you had fallopian tubes. So, um, ironically, my mother could get, could always get pregnant. She couldn't stay pregnant. The reason she couldn't stay pregnant was because of that scar tissue. So she was kind of the ideal candidate for this IVF program. Um, and then no, I had no fertility issues at all. And I had my son at the same age, actually, that my mother had me. I was 28 when I had my son. The reason why I ask is because <laughs> I wonder what that's like. The fertility community is such a tribe in many in many cases, partly because they have at least some, you know, some similar roots to, to mm-hmm. draw upon. Like, uh, even though the journeys are different, there's, there's some common threads and sometimes it, those common threads are so distinct from the rest of society that that's where they form their bond. And, and you don't have that with them. You have a different kind of bond with them. It's like, it's, it's as though they're, it's like their kids, you know, the, the ones that have gone through treatment and been successful are gone through time, fast forward to be a grown up, and now are with them in that community. So what is, what is that like, like to be, to be not one of them at all in one sense and to yep. be the, and to be like the, the most in another sense. Yeah. Right. To be the end product in another sense. What's that like? Yeah. So, I mean, that's where to me, um, I've always been very cognizant of that. It's like, I cannot speak to what it is like to exactly experience, um, infertility or trouble with your family building. Right. I'm very aware of that. So I never speak to what that is like. What I can say is I can relate to what my, my parents went through, um, in their very unique situation. And that is where it has become my goal that I am very humbled and privileged to be here. And I realize that I am very humbled and privileged to be here. And so my work as a patient advocate or um, as somebody who can be a resource or connector for somebody else going through this, my goal has always been for people to know what their options are before they need them. Um, Because my parents really, you know, were kind of given this option in a moment of crisis of like, Oh my God, what do we do? We have, we, we can't have a child of our own. What are we going to do? And I never want anyone to feel like they don't know where to turn. And so my speaking up and out has always been kind of my love letter to the industry as a thank you. And to all the patients, um, as a, as a thank you for saying like, thanks for not giving up and, and making sure that I got here. Um, because it took everybody, it took all of my 
parents' willpower of fighting. It took all of the scientists and lab technicians and embryologists um, and nurses um, and even receptionists answering the phone and all the billing folks. It took so many people just for me to be here talking to you today. And so that's where I'm going to keep keep using my unique platform and voice to keep moving the needle um, ahead in this industry. And it's, it's just, it's, it's honestly my only way of saying thank you because the words thank you seem wildly inadequate. How old were you when you started meeting other adults that, well, maybe, no, I won't even ask the question adults. How often, how old were you when other people started introducing them to themselves to you say, I'm an IVF baby too. Uh, I mean, I think I'm a, a bad person to ask that question only because, because you're I, the magnet. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, we had those reunions from, from when I was very little with the mother's day stuff. So, so I always had other IVF babies around me always. Um, the only difference was, you know, when I was little, we would all introduce ourselves using our numbers. And so, you know, a friend of mine would be like, I'm number 10. I'd be like, I'm number one. Um, you know, so nice to meet you. Where's number five. We don't know. Like, um, so, so, but then, you know, to have friends of mine now my age saying, Oh, I'm going through IVF or I'm having an IVF baby, um, myself. And, and they often say, thank you. And I'm like, you know, I, I appreciate that sentiment so much, but like, honestly, I, my, my joke is that I didn't really do anything. I just showed up. Um, it was really everybody else that did the hard work. You know, I, I had no control in, in whether I was here or not. It was everybody else. Because you've got this passion, because you've got this unique perspective, are you ever asked to, or do you take it upon yourself to be a public relations force when something bad happens like when there is the 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 rare tank leak or embryo mix-up or some sociopath in some like OBGYN clinic from 30 years ago that fathers how many embryos like right uh when that stuff happens and people are looking at the fertility field like Wait, what's like, is that witchcraft? What's going on mm. over there? Uh, and uh, we know how rare that is. And we know how much of a sliver it is to, in, in comparison to the good in the hundreds of thousands of, of lives and now over a million IVF babies that have been born from uh, the treatment. But uh, like, do, do you see yourself in a unique position? Like, do you feel like an obligation to, to be a counter voice when that stuff starts to get a larger share of voice in the public sphere? Um, I mean, yes and no. So obviously, especially with, with my role at tomorrow, we're always trying to move the needle ahead for safety and, you know, best practices and, and upping the standard of care. Right. Um, and so on, on that kind of mission level, I'm, I'm always saying like, this is why this technology is so desperately needed so that in the rare circumstance or whatever that it happens, this is, this is not a possibility, um, or the risk is mitigated to, you know, such a degree. Um, on the other hand, I also know because I grew up in this industry, how deeply IVF clinicians and lab techs and embryologists and everybody care about what they're doing. And 
you know, I come at it from a very different lens of like, nobody would ever do anything on purpose, right? Like this is, as you said, like these are catastrophic mix-ups that I don't think anybody obviously ever wants to have happen. Um, and so therefore like, let's come together, link arms, let's talk about breast practices. Let's make sure that we're all doing everything in our power to make sure that this never happens, right? That this, this is, this is the one thing we all collectively have agreed that we want to avoid from happening. So let's figure out how to do that together. Um, and it is not from a place of, you know, um, fear mongering. It's, you know, we had a practice in place that was the best at the time. Now there's a new option. You know, let's, let's go forward with the new option because it's new, it's a new standard. Um, and it's just like, you know, kind of, um, same thing with how the industry itself has grown up, right? We used to use certain hormones in the early days of IVF that now we don't really, like my mom was on Pergonol. They don't make Pergonol anymore. There's now a new version out there that's the next best, latest, greatest, right? So we're always iterating. We're always moving the needle. Um, again, even vitrification was a, it was a moment in time where, there, where we were moving the needle, right? We went from fresh transfer to now we know we can vitrify and we can flash freeze. So what does that mean for moving the needle? Um, and so that's where I always am kind of coming from. I'm like, what do we have to do now to move the needle? From an advocacy standpoint, from a safety and technology standpoint, what can we do together? I'm curious a little bit while we're talking about that. I do want to conclude with you sharing what you think the field should be paying attention to. But uh, I want to ask with regard to the extent that you're able to talk about it, what, what is tomorrow's vision or, or potential outside of just the IVF space? Like, uh, I got to believe that this company is, is also going to do other things with this technology. So what's on the horizon? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm actually a terrible person to ask <laughs> because I am so ingrained in this, in this particular field, in this particular niche that I'm like only, I'm like a horse with blinders on that. This is our goal right now. This is our mission. This is our drive. Um, I'm, I'm the wrong person to talk about future looking because at this point it's, we just want everybody to understand what we have going on right now, uh, that's in the marketplace for patients and clinics, um, to, to move forward. Um, but I am excited about where, where the potential of this could go. Um, although I don't, necessarily, I'm not the person that's necessarily involved in those discussions, but I am excited about, you know, just knowing about the, um, perceived, uh, benefits of this technology in, you know, potentially other fields, who knows? Well, let's talk then about what you think that the field should be paying attention to. Um, and so let's maybe start this conclusion with, what do you think that people aren't paying attention to enough of that, that you see from your vantage point from having worked for all these different startups from now working for tomorrow, from having talked to so many doctors and been involved in the institutional structure. Like, what do you think that people just aren't paying attention to enough of right now? Um, I mean, that is such a hard question for me. I think it's always the, coverage and insurance landscape. Um, we have known 
for many, many years that, you know, in many ways, reproductive technologies are cost prohibitive for so many people. And that continues to be a really tough nut to crack to make it more accessible um, to more people. And, and that is something that I know we're all striving to change, but it's so hard and it's so slow um, that I think that that you know, in, in this Roe v. Wade overturned landscape, it's really come to the forefront even more, um, you know, as, as a, as a worry that, you know, it will become less accessible as opposed to more accessible. Um, so I think for, for me personally, that's always one that I'm like, you know, if everybody can, really pay attention, not just to the technology and best practices going on in the world, because we know that's going to continue to march forward, but really the landscape itself and, and making sure that everybody has access. And, and, and that is so key. And I don't think we can ever stop paying attention to it. Truthfully. Like if, if we take our eyes off that ball for one minute, um, I think it can be really harmful in the long run. Well, then I'll, I'll let you conclude however you want to conclude to our audience of practice owners and docs and fertility execs. Uh, maybe it's, it's a call for how you'd like them to get involved with that, but how would you like to conclude? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, for me, it's always, it always comes down to what do we think we need and how do we think we need to get there? Um, and, I grew up in an industry where everything was highly collaborative, right? That was what everybody that talks about the Jones remarks at how collegial and academic and collaborative they were um, back then that they, you know, wanted to share the latest and greatest research. They wanted to share best practices. Um, and I think we all still need to kind of, especially in this current landscape, continue to link arms and, and kind of look around and say like, yes, I know we're competing maybe for customer acquisition and those kinds of things, but let's make sure that we all agree that we want to provide the best care that we can to our ability, period, full stop. And whatever that looks like in the current day, landscape, technology, whatever it is, um, if we can all say that we're all driving towards the utmost best patient care, that's really all that matters to me. And I think that that's really all that matters to patients as well, is they all want to know that we are marching in the same direction, um, you know, towards the best care. And I think wholesale, you know, all of the practitioners that I've come into contact with, um, you know, embody that, which is a lovely thing. And it's very rare to have a whole industry care so deeply about, you know, their patients on a, on a very human level. Um, so I just hope that we continue that um, and that we don't let um, any political landscapes or law changes kind of derail us from, from really providing the best that we can. And then we'll have a few more million Elizabeth cars. <laughs> oh God. Uh, they, can, they can all be guests on the show. Maybe not me, no, but no. Uh, I, 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 we'll, we'll do like every, every millionth or so, or maybe okay. every hundred thousand that can, can be a guest on yeah, the that's show. A, that's the running joke of why my parents never had another. They were like, <laughs> we were good with you. We decided to stop <laughs> after you. <laughs> Elizabeth Carr, thank you very much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. 
If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.